On today's podcast, Lara and Kevin Weberling will talk about their beloved son, Hans, who passed away when he was nine years old after a nearly six-year battle with stage four high-risk neuroblastoma in September of 2012. Lara and Kevin will detail a journey that took them to three different hospitals as they did everything possible to help Hans in his fight against a pediatric cancer that is a very difficult one to cure, especially as Hans fought multiple relapses. Lara and Kevin will also discuss what they have done as pediatric cancer advocates since Hans passed away, including their annual participation in the Children's Hospital of Los Angeles Malibu Nautical Triathlon, in which their team has raised $137,000 for pediatric cancer patients and their involvement with other parents who have unfortunately become members of the neuroblastoma community. Thank you for listening to this podcast. It is now my pleasure to introduce Lara and Kevin Weberling to my audience and welcome both of them to my podcast. Thank you very much uh, for joining me. It's great to have you here. Thank you so much, Mark. It's great to be here with you. Thanks, Mark. Now, I think I'm going to start my first question with Lara. As you and your husband, Kevin, have had quite a journey, um, to say the least, which began back in 2006, and that's where we're going to start our podcast. You noticed, uh, both noticed, I guess, or at least you did, Lara, that your son, Hans, had developed a bruise on his left testicle. He was three years old at the time in September. What was your initial thought uh, when you saw that? Well, it was so confusing because it would be there at the end of the day when he was up and running around, but then in the, he's still in a nighttime diaper, but in the morning it would be gone. And so um, it was very confusing and concerning and, you know, not unlike many of the pediatric cancer stories I've heard, it was really quite a bungle. I always use that word to describe, to get from noticing that to, you know, it was about a month of appointments and chasing down even our pediatrician, our um, everybody. And, and, and at first they thought it was maybe an infection or an injury. Um, and really it was my mom's old fashioned advice about a month into this where his symptoms were kind of declining. He was um, not eating as well and becoming more lethargic. And my mom said, pack a high protein lunch and drive him to the best children's hospital that you can drive to. And it was when we did that at the end of a very long day that we finally got the ultrasound that led to us first hearing the word ever in my life, neuroblastoma. Well, moms know best, and I've had so many podcasts with uh, moms who are actual moms, not grandparents, if you know what I'm yeah. saying, Yeah, that are the ones that push pediatricians to that something's wrong, you know your child, and uh, it's happened so many times that the moms are the ones that the, are the engines that really uh, get... Uh, Unfortunately, the ball rolling uh, to where it goes. Now, I'm going to ask Kevin, 
when when this was going on, did you have any particular thoughts that were out of the ordinary, or did um, uh, Lara have any thoughts that are out of the ordinary as far as what the bruise showed, or did you just assume that when uh, you went to the pediatrician, it was something that three-year-old boys just had, and there will be a quick solution to it? Yeah, I I remember um, it was probably like a month-long process, like Lara said, of going back and forth to the pediatricians. I remember one of the other diagnoses or thoughts from one of them was that it was a hernia. Um, so there was lots of stuff floating around. Uh, but I also thought, because I was coaching Hans in YMCA soccer at the time, so it was the little three-year-olds, you know, running around like a a mass, you know, out in the field. But so, like, I thought, well, maybe he did get kicked or, you know, it could have been something simple. But then I do remember when she took him down that day, the thing I noticed too is he was sitting down. He's actually in the bathroom and I noticed his abdomen was really, really swollen. And that was when I too was like, Laura, we, you got to get him down here right now. Of course we had our, our daughter L too at home at that time. So she was, I guess about eight. Mm-hmm. Um, so Laura ran down to the hospital, just like her mom's told her to do. And, and I stayed home with L. So it was kind of, yeah, it was very, um, I knew something was wrong, you know? So when she called me the, after the ultrasound, it wasn't surprising, but pretty devastating for sure. I can imagine that it was now Lara, when you got hand, hands down, Hans down to the pediatrician, did he immediately order the tests that led up to what the diagnosis was? No, no. So our pediatrician was kind of going in a different direction. And, you know, that decision to go to the children's hospital that day, we were actually kind of bucking the doctor's orders because it was a wait and see. And, you know, he had us um, working with a urologist and they were going to do other certain tests that um, it, it, but he wasn't doing blood work. He wasn't doing an abdominal ultrasound. I think that it was kind of a laser focus on the testicle. And what actually was happening was the neuroblastoma, it sounds like a, um, you know, something in the brain, but it's actually a solid tumor off of the left adrenal in most cases. So his little tumor had grown so large. It was actually the size of a nerve football by the time they really got him in and got all the scans and assessment done, that it was pressing fluid into the, or pressing against the kidney and it was pressing fluid into the um, testicle. So that was what the bruising was. But, you know, I've learned in, in years since that thankfully pediatric cancers are so rare that maybe a great pediatrician in a 40 year career may have one diagnosis. So, you know, it, it might be your gut reaction to fault the pediatrician, but we're just fortunate that they don't have the ability and capability to get really good at diagnosing pediatric cancers. You know, I know we can get better, but um, that's, that's the one thing I've just, I'm grateful for is that it is still so rare. Well, thankfully. So now after your point though mark um, when she did get the ultrasound they did order the tests 
right. They knew, I think, right away. And oh, yeah. Hans did not come home. That he, that's that was the start of our hospital, initial hospital stay for weeks. So, and and I believe that was uh, on the uh, October twenty fifth. Was that when that took place? Yeah. Okay. Now, Kevin, I'm going to stay with you on this question. Did you or Lara have any prior experience with pediatric cancer from stories you heard, a family member, a friend, and how long did it take for you, if you ever actually gotten to this point, that you could process the diagnosis that you received that uh, Hans had uh, stage four high-risk neuroblastoma? I, I don't think I... I grew up in a small town in Eastern Washington, and I can't remember anyone that I went to school with having any kind of pediatric cancer. So yeah, I had no one in our family, you know, other than grandparents, uh, grandpas had prostate cancer late in life. Um, I had zero experience with it, but I think for me, it took to process it. It was super shocking driving down to the hospital meet Lara and Hans was hooked up to already to IVs and um, he was going to get blood transfusions and, and L was, our daughter was with me probably another week until um, our doctor sat down and really explained what was going on and what the treatment protocol would be and kind of what our next six months would be, you know, uh, that kind of kicked it into gear for me. And it was actually, for me, it was really helpful because I was so, I, you know, I was looking on the internet, what is it? But it was so helpful to hear that we had some path forward, you know, and that we could have a goal as a family and, and for Hans. So that made me feel good. And it kind of turned for me there to like, okay, we're just going to start fighting, you know? Yeah. I guess he might be interested in, in giving his opinion too. Yes. <laughs> she didn't get to know Hans, but we, we think she knows Hans. <laughs> of course. And, and, and you can, you, you, you can chime in on this question as far as your possible experience about pediatric cancer. Were you also totally in the dark about it pretty much uh, before uh, Hans had his issue? Well, I do find it stunning that I had never heard the word neuroblastoma before, you know, his his diagnosis. And I had a friend in elementary school, um, my friend Jimmy, his little brother Nicholas had had um, leukemia and he was a survivor. But, you know, back then it was before blogs and all this, you know, awareness and support movement. That was basically all I knew was that Jimmy's little brother had leukemia you know that was about the entire extent of my knowledge of pediatric cancer now kevin you mentioned that his doctors um did sit down with you which helped you process the situation and at least you had a an idea of what was going on but was there a um explanation <laughs> between the differences of stage one neuroblastoma, which can be diagnosed fairly quickly. And the issue that Hans ran into, which was high risk stage four neuroblastoma, which 
unfortunately happens in a lot of diagnosis because it's a very difficult form of pediatric cancer to diagnose. And that what he had did in fact um, have a, uh, a potential for a relapse and the problem that, that would cause. Yeah, <clears throat> um, there was a pretty good explanation of the different staging. <clears throat> and so it wasn't, though, I would say it wasn't presented as something completely dire, or um, I think there was mention that, you know, if, if the kids didn't relapse, they usually had good outcomes, but it was all pretty positive at the at the beginning. And so we knew, okay, this is about as bad as it can get, but there are kids that come through it um, and there is a treatment protocol and this is what we're gonna do, you know? And so, and we were at a good spot at the Texas Children's. I mean, we were in a big city, uh, a good hospital system. So I felt pretty good at, I don't know. I just wanted hope at that point, something to move forward on. So. Yeah, it was it was a help it was a helpful explanation that they initially gave us to me. Well, certainly at the time you had hope. And Laura, I'm going to go with you with this. You you mentioned Texas Children's Hospital, which is an excellent hospital down in the Houston area. You lived at the time in Woodlands. Mm-hmm. Now his initial treatment uh had five rounds of chemotherapy. There was a surgery, there was a stem cell transplant, radiation. By July. Hans was found to have no evidence of a disease, which is always the magic words to hear. What was that period of time like for Hans uh, and your family after the uh, no evidence of disease um, was told to you? Well, it was, you know, it was a wonderful relief. And I always operated on such a level of hope that, you know, that was kind of my expectation too, that we were going to get there. But yet at the same time with Hans, he had, um, he had a very serious side effect from his second surgery and he lost both of his adrenal glands in one in each of the surgeries. So he, um, was very fragile And what we had to do was we had to artificially replace the hormones that your adrenal glands produce. And it, you know, we're much less elegant and efficient at doing that than the adrenal glands are. So it just made him very vulnerable. So if he was under situations of stress or if he was a little bit sick, we'd have to give him, you know, we'd have to tailor his steroids that we gave him it was um, hydrocortisone and uh fludrocortisone so we'd have to give him these twice a day and we'd have to really watch him for signs of fever or even there was an occasional time when he would just become emotionally upset and we'd have to you know support him so even during that time um when he was I mean we made it through um it really felt like there was kind of no finish line because at the same time the maintenance at the time the maintenance protocol for a kiddo who'd come through everything and was no evidence of disease was to be on Accutane, which, you know, is a, is a medicine that some teens are on for uh, their acne. And 
he had a surprisingly difficult time with Accutane even. Um, and I think it was partly because of his sensitivity due to losing both of those adrenals because they were encompassed in tumor. So they really needed to come out. But then, so that that time to me is really marked by this awareness that, okay, wow, we have this kiddo who is, he made it, but he's also really fragile. And, you know, of course, we're going to support him in every way we can, but um, he's a delicate little guy right now. And I know we're going to do better and we're going to learn how to take care of him better. But then there was kind of an, also an element of we're learning this and his doctors are learning him. And so it was, it was a difficult and I would say tumultuous time still when he was found to be no evidence of disease before he relapsed. Well, I I was going to, the the next point was going to be the relapse and i'll go with kevin on this this happened in may of 2008 uh uh hans relapsed and after a spot was found on um i'm not exactly sure actually whether the spot was found what but but there was a spot there that shouldn't have been there what were uh, hans's doctors saying about this relapse um I mean, I remember that day when he we knew it because he came home and I I can still picture it. It was up on our front porch going to the front door and he told me his arm hurt really bad in the like right, like humorous, like just below the shoulder. And so I was like, oh, like, OK, because we did know enough and we knew enough other kiddos at that point. Um, cause we kind of had a little neuroblastoma family at that point. Um, so we did know what relapse looked like. We knew that it, you know, often came back in the bones. Um, and so it was, we kind of knew, or I kind of knew. And then when we got the x-ray and the scans that confirmed it, I mean, he, his arm actually then, well, even just while he was in the hospital, it broke just from being so, um, you know, kind of rotted through. Um, so it was really painful for him. It was horrible. <clears throat> but I I don't remember thinking, though, that at that point that it was the end. You know, I I remember still thinking, OK, it's really localized. Like, let's <clears throat> let's keep going forward. You know, it, but it was a blow for sure, because we did know at, at least at that time, we knew other kiddos who didn't make it through relapse. So it was kind of, yeah, it was, it was hard. This is a very tough subject to talk about, obviously. So if there are any questions that I'm going to ask that you do either do not want to answer or you want the other person to answer, that is perfectly fine. So okay. uh, as to be expected, um, the way that you're able just to come on and talk about it, frankly, amazes me. So uh, it amazes me when any parent can come on and talk about it. So, um, but I will, I will ask Lara this. There was good news again for Hans, as he was declared once again, that there was no evidence of disease. This was in January of 2009 and his remission lasted until December, which is a pretty good amount of time, almost a year then lesions were found in his skull, which necessitated 25 more rounds of treatment. How did Hans respond to that? You know, I always say he was so amazing. I think a lot of these kiddos are he. Um, 
I think deep down he knew, like on some spiritual level, that he knew he was just here to be this warrior. Like, I think he knew his purpose in life more so than we ever will. You know, I think he knew he was on this mission. He just had to buckle up, buckle in and do it. And then he was very motivated to just get home and live his little regular little boy's life, you know. Um, But he he would just do everything he had to do, like the, you know, best sport in the world, you know. Kids are so resilient. and. I've had the pleasure of, of visiting kids in the hospital years ago at the, at the Boston Children's Hospital. I'm from Boston through the Jimmy Fund. And the word you used it, uh, being resilient, that's really, I think, the number one thing that every one of these kids, for uh, how they do it, I don't know. But it, it, it's totally amazing the way that they can – somehow come through these treatments and then what ends up happening. And I'm guessing both of you are going to agree to this. They're the ones that end up teaching their parents how to respond because they say, see them being brave uh, and they have to be brave themselves as hard as that is. So certainly I think uh, Hans gave you quite a few lessons, which we're going to, I'm going to ask you about later, uh, which have, have, have kept, uh, have been kept with you for a long time. Now, Kevin, in 2011, your family moved to Bakersfield, California. And at this point, his disease is progressing in the wrong direction. You moved his care to Children's Hospital of Los Angeles, which is another outstanding hospital. With his number of relapses that he had already had, were his doctors still trying to give you optimism that there were treatment options that had not been tried and that they were going to do their best uh, to give him his best shot? Yeah. In fact, when we moved, um, he was on a, a treatment protocol, but he, his disease was really stable. Um, and it had, it had been for, for a long time. And then it really didn't start progressing until maybe two months it was I remember it was in July of that summer and we'd moved maybe a month and a half before um so it that was when it started going downhill but um but yeah I Children's Hospital Los Angeles there was all of the different um clinical trials going on right so so we knew that there was still more options to go through we were at that point kind of thinking of Hans just from his well-being and he'd been through a lot of treatment at that point, but but he was a fighter and he was pretty stoic for treatments. And then he was always very happy when he came home, you know, he and could hang out with his pets. So it wasn't a thought of oh, we we're not gonna keep going. There's still more options. So there was still hope there for sure. And and so that's what we did. And I think at least for me, with all of those other um, clinical trial options out there, we were always kind of thinking, well, maybe it's this next one that's coming down the pipe that'll do it, you know? And as long as Hans can handle it, then let's keep going, you know? So that was kind of 
at least my mindset. Now, Lara, one of the things, uh, options that did look good, uh, at least at some point, was when Hans went to the um, University of California at San Francisco. He had a stem cell rescue, which was completed. And that showed almost a complete response uh, that was certainly prayed for and that he needed, except for one small lesion, which was uh, in his skull. How are you and Kevin feeling after that? And how are his doctors feeling? You know what? We we all felt really relieved and amazed and uplifted. We felt like Hans is this little, I mean, amazing little guy. And, um, you know, looking back now, I kind of think Hans's tumor was very, um, I don't know the right word for it. it would be very responsive. So you could treat it. We could get it to go away. But the problem was it was also like a zombie. It just was just kept coming back, you know? So um, we were grateful that it was as, you know, responsive as it was. And I remember that day, I remember thinking, hallelujah, <laughs> he did it again. This is amazing. And I think I'm so you know, optimistic. We've both had to be. I'm so like hope oriented that even the first scan where it was like there was something on his skull and my mind is thinking, well, and maybe that's just a little shampoo. <laughs> you know, like I, I'm always looking for like, no, I don't think so. I think that's some shampoo. And the doctors are trying to give me a straight face with my response, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. Quite a roller coaster, obviously, that that uh, the whole journey was. Now I'll ask Kevin this question or, or propose it anyway. Now by June, uh, Hans had had a, a multi-lesion relapse. Le uh, lesion showed up in his spine, pelvis, already ones in his skull and, and then his neck and his disease progressed uh, fairly quickly. And unfortunately Hans passed away on September 21st of 2012. What were Hans's last weeks like for him? And were there any moments of levity and even possibly good moments uh, that, that Hans had as he as, as he neared uh, um, September 21st? Yeah, I think that summer there was <clears throat> we were still, you know, going to the hospital and continuing treatment. Um Although it was more palliative, palliative at that point, you know, to stuff that wasn't, you know, too aggressive, you know, that wasn't going to really make him really sick. <clears throat> so we kind of knew. And then we had to sit down um, probably in August with, with our doctor at CHLA. And I don't even remember who all was in the room, but it was that discussion that, hey, this is not this is it you know and Hans was with us too and I think he knew what the talk was about you know he was nine at that point um and the talk about going on hospice you know and so that was kind of the all right this is what we're doing you know and this is kind of it but <clears throat> prior to that he he was still at home I mean we I, one of the big things I did was play Legos with him we were we played video games all the time together so we were still playing and still having fun at the house. Um, 
And then the last few weeks, though, were, he was pretty much asleep, you know, the whole time. Um, there wasn't a lot of waking hours that September, probably, until he passed away. Okay, now, Lara, I'm going to ask you this question because it was mentioned before about clinical trials. Yeah. Now, there were obviously he had he had um, treatment for six years. It's a long time uh, to go through what he went through. And that there were clinical trials that were uh, uh, at various stages used. Did any of these clinical trials work uh, at any point? And are there any of these trials that have actually graduated into regular medicine uh, that that has been used um, uh, for today's patients? Yeah, so... I would say that, um, yes, uh, he was on a small handful of clinical trials, and one of them was um, around MIBG, which is the, uh, what do you call it, radiotherapy treatment that we used in, I, when Hans was first diagnosed with relapse, we kind of, our, our home doctor at um, Texas Children's was a kind of suggesting, I guess, less aggressive, less exploratory um, treatments. And Kevin and I had had the wonderful fortune of um, going to a conference that she she headed up and founded the Children's Neuroblastoma Cancer Foundation. And this foundation offers an annual conference every summer in Chicago. And it brings families together with... Um, physicians from around the country who are, uh, you know, neuroblastoma experts. So this was before Hans relapse that we were acquiring this information. It was kind of like a put together your own playbook. Like if, if your son or your child relapses, there are options, there is hope. Um, And so with that experience on hand months before Hans ever relapsed, we kind of had our notebook and our playbook. And when we were hearing, you know, our original doctor come up with her plan for Hans, you know, we just kind of put our heads together and we said, you know, there's other options out there. There's clinical trials. We can talk, we can reach out, we can talk. So um, that like, honestly, that weekend, Kevin and I put together a few emails and we sent them off to, you know, Neuroblastoma Centers of Excellence, Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, um, Memorial Sloan Kettering, uh, Children's Hospital of Cincinnati, and just in pursuit of more, um, of, of newer options, clinical trials. So originally, way back, we, um, we um, were treated for MIBG by Dr. Maris at, at CHOP. And honestly, I can't remember if that was on clinical trial or off-label. Sometimes we would get treatments that were um, a clinical trial drug, but they do compassionate use because maybe you don't quite meet the screening criteria to be placed on the trial. And it could be something like, um, you know, your tumor isn't active and it needed to be, you know, something like that. So. Um, what they were doing is they're just trying to find the very best combination of MIBG, when to give it, what to give it with, and, um, you know, the dosage and everything. So we did actually way back then we had MIBG in combination with 
was it Verinistat or Vincristine? Yeah, one of those. And and later they actually just did what they called a pick a winner. They did a um, stage three clinical trial to decide what is the most effective way to give Verinistat or MIBG. Is it MIBG alone? Is it MIBG with you know drug A or drug B? And so they finally determined that you know the best way is MIBG with drug B. I don't remember which drug one. Do you remember, Kevin? There's still ongoing clinical oh, trials today, but <clears throat> I will say that, yeah, Hans is, I don't know, and we can talk about that later, but I'm part of a, uh, I'm a member of a data safety monitoring board as a parent representative for uh, the NAT group, which is new approaches to um, neuroblastoma therapies. And it's a consortium of, of all a, a lot of the same doctors that Hans was treated by. So I get a peek a little bit at what clinical trials are ongoing and kind of their results. And I can see that <clears throat> of all the things that Hans went through, he's still out there a little bit in the ether because <laughs> he's some of his results are still, I'm sure, guiding these new treatments you know that are that are going through and and he took he was one of the initial people to get some of those treatments um mm -hmm. back in the day and now they're refining them and having i think better success so it's good and then just to, to say one more thing <clears throat> on that he was on this drug um i believe it was mln 8327 millennium yeah. and um he actually found wonderful success. It, he had a, a good quality of life. He had that one of the side effects were a mild euphoria. I mean, what a wonderful side effect. He did lose his hair, but I mean, he had good blood counts. He could kind of be out and about. And he was on that drug for something like 16 or 18 rounds. And I remember when you go on an experimental drug, you're not sure that was the only thing he was on. He wasn't on it in combination with any other chemo. And I remember some of the docs, you know, at our home facility kind of saying, well, we'll see how long it lasts. And I don't know how many would have bet that he'd get, you know, 18 rounds. It was amazing. And it, it has found, I think, from what I hear, some success for a handful of other children. It certainly is no silver bullet, but for a group of kids out there, they can keep their tumor at bay and live their life. And it, it's wonderful. Well, it must give give both of you at least some comfort knowing that um, Hans's life has been very meaningful in uh, in many ways, uh, as short, obviously, as too short as it was. Now, I think I'll ask Kevin the question about your daughter, Elle. Yeah. If my math is correct, it probably isn't. Is she 23 years old? Yeah. Oh, there you go. 20. 24? <laughs> no. She just turned 24. She just turned 24. Yeah. Well, well, that's good, Kevin, that you remembered her birthday. That's very nice of you. <laughs> now, and as, as Hans's older sister, she saw his treatment up close beginning when, you know, she was probably, eight, as you said before, eight years old and ending when she was 14. Now, as Hans's sibling and older sister, how did the years from 2006 until 2012 affect her? And now some 10 years later, has she had a difficult time at any point with the loss of her younger brother and the way that it happened? 
Yeah. So, I mean, I remember that that's one of the images burned into my <clears throat> memory for sure is when Lara called me from the hospital after the ultrasound and they, they knew there was a big mass in there. And I remember telling Elle, I remember right where I was in the house, in our bedroom and telling her that Hans, you know, had something in his abdominal area and telling her it was bad. Like it was a really hard conversation and she was pretty stoic, you know, <clears throat> but I would say from that point on, I, I think her and Hans had a pretty good relationship. I mean, a pretty in some ways, normal brother and sister relationship. They fought, they loved each other. They, you know, they were a little bit five years separated in age. So they're in different stages a little bit, but they kind of had a normal relationship, but she also knew he was delicate, you know? And so there was that she couldn't beat up on him and do things like that, but they were pretty close for sure. And I, the one thing I would say about Elle that, that, goes through to today is that she had to become an adult almost at eight when she was a little kid, you know, and she saw things that aren't normal, growing up, happy-go-lucky, fun things, you know, and then especially seeing her her brother pass that morning, um, that's probably, you know, she doesn't talk about that a lot, but um, it's probably influenced her forever, you know. And, and it's also, it's a, there is one blessing of that as I still feel today and Laura, you can comment, but I feel like from that moment when he got diagnosed, we are like uh, the tightest unit. And to this day, I mean, we're, that's something that experience is so unique that, and it's almost undescribable to other people that you kind of have this inward thing of this is what we went through and we don't have to express it all the time, but we know, you know, and we're, it's made us very close. I can imagine that it has. Now, Laura, <clears throat> can you talk about the period of time during Hans's treatment? And then we're going to get on to what has happened since then um, about the help that you received from your family, from friends and healthcare providers and how they helped you and get you through this period. Oh my gosh. Well, you know, there's certain things that happen in life that you just can't do by yourself. You know, there's no way we could do our role as parents and, you know, take care of Elle, take care of Hans. And then Kevin had to go do his job to provide, you know, health insurance for our little family. So we, just needed so much help and support. And, you know, here we are, this family from Washington state, we'd been in Texas at the time for four years and, you know, all of our family was out of state, but we had the friendships that we had built um, in the woodlands, just being normal little toddler and family, soccer dad, Girl Scout mom. I I worked part-time at a preschool and that community just kind of infiltrated us and supported us and then we found our you know our family would come down on 
planes, friends and family would kind of sign up to be there for the most critical and important aspects of Hans's treatment. So really, we were just flooded with support. We were on a non-repeating list at the Catholic church I taught preschool at um, of meals. So we would get meals like three nights a week from all these wonderful Catholic moms. We would get, I mean, just so much love and support and the healthcare workers. That's something else that will move you to tears. And the one perfect example of the sacrifices they make, I remember, you know, it's Houston. It, of course, we're fighting cancer. There's, we're going to be fighting cancer through hurricane season. So I remember we were there. I think it was during Ike and we were admitted. And then looking down from the ninth floor and you could see these nurses flooding in with packed bags because they knew they weren't going home that night. They didn't know when they'd be going home. So they're sending their families to someone else so they can flood into the Okay. <laughs> now, in the, in the years uh, after Hans passed away, you and you, Kevin, I believe, have been involved in a number of uh, different ways to help others. Now, Laura, you started uh, a group uh, for neuroblaster, neuroblastoma families called NPAC. Can you talk about that, what it entailed uh, and, and its objective? And is it something that is still going on today? Yeah. So it was basically a support group for families at uh, CHLA. And um, one of the main reasons I founded it was because we had this good fortune at Texas to, um, you know, going through this horrible diagnosis, but we were going through it in sync with other families. You know, we kind of found a little cohort. And then when I was at CHLA, um, I noticed that you know, it was kind of hit or miss. It was a bigger hospital. Um, so there was one mom that was wonderful and she would reach out to me and she w- we would help and support each other, but we hadn't found a bigger group. So it was actually after I we lost Hans that um, we were at Children's Hospital for a CNCF function. And um, I reached out to the doctor there. And I said, you know, we really need a parent group just for neuroblastoma. Neuroblastoma is so unique among other children's cancers that the treatment protocol is so rigorous and really research is only increasing the rigor. Um, So it's just a uniquely different treatment to difficult treatment to navigate. And um, I feel like the best way to get through it is to relate with others who are going through it. So I set up this group where once a quarter we invited families to come together and we would just select a learning topic, invite a guest speaker. It could be on anything. It could be on, you know, current research. It could be on social services or psychosocial support surrounding side effects of treatment. And so it had two functions. One, that we would learn something new related to this disease we were facing. And two, that we would have time to get together, get to know each other and process and kind of pull you out of this sense of isolation that, of course, something as challenging as neuroblastoma creates. 
And um, when I left, I passed the baton on to another mother, Sandra, and we have had meetings since then. So I do hope it continues. When I, when we moved, we moved to Oregon almost two years ago. So we're no longer near in California. Kevin, I want to ask you this question as um, Lara was talking about relating to other uh, parents who have been through this. Have you been able to do do that type of thing? Sometimes for men, it's harder than women as far as communication, stuff like that. Have you been able to meet other parents or other men or, or, or parents that uh, you can relate to? And talk about things that you just could not talk about with anyone who has not experienced what you uh, and Lara have experienced. You know, since he passed and we're not, or at least I am not at the hospital setting very much. um, I really haven't talked with a lot of other parents um, that much, but but it has helped me and even other adults, colleagues and things that have maybe have a new diagnosis. Like I do feel like I, I know what that means and what the process is going to be like going forward with treatment and everything. So I'm always able to talk to people, I think pretty, um, you know, on a, on a emotional level that way and offer support, whether it's driving people to treatments if they need to, things like that. So I, I think it's certainly helped me, but, um, or it's made an impact on me, but, uh, like Laura and I, as I mentioned before, uh, Hans's last doctor, Aras Maricelli and at CHLA, she's kind of runs the NANT, uh, group, uh, which is there's doctors from all over the country on that one on the board. And so they kind of oversee all the current clinical trials that are under, that are going on through NANT um, from a safety monitoring standpoint. So looking at, you know, if there's um, dose limiting toxicities or or things that are going maybe not as planned with the trial, that's where it comes to the board. And she asked me if I would be a a non-medical representative on that board. And so I still get to interact with a lot of Hans's old doctors. Um, I love that. I, you know, even though we lost them, I know that they did I everything they could. I think we all did as a family and as a medical team that we did everything. There's no regrets. And so I'm really thankful to be able to still communicate and be friends with them, but also to see all the new clinical trials coming through the pipe and see. Like I said, hey, Hans took that drug. I remember that. Um, <clears throat> kind of my role is to be the parent rep when when someone says, oh, there's this treatment at this facility or uh, my initial thought is, what does that mean for travel as a parent? What does that mean for the kiddo? If you say bone biopsy, like, you know what pain that entails, what that means for the family. Um, you know, we went to CHOP, we were at Texas, we've been to Seattle, San Francisco, LA, we've traveled a lot. And we were fortunate to have the means to do that. But not everyone's like that. And so that's kind of my role on that board. And I'm, I've been on it for, gosh, 10 years, probably. And I, 
it's one of my proudest things I do right now, for sure. Well, yeah, just you, to be involved. You, you've played a very significant role. And uh, I think over the last 10 years, and it's certainly something that uh, you should, you should be proud of. And it's, it's, it's really an accomplishment, I think. Now, one thing that both of you and L do participate in together is the Children's Hospital of Los Angeles, Malibu Nautical Triathlon. And this brings smiles, I think, to both of your faces. So I'm going to ask Laura to talk about this event, how much your team has been able to raise over the years, and how meaningful has this event uh, been to uh, to your family? You know what? It's just very joyful and wonderful. Malibu is just this beautiful kind of exclusive you know, magical place. And um, it first started by another parent, my friend Sandra, and she put together a team she calls Sophia's Buddies. And uh, so there's just a bunch of families. It's kind of a different number every year that can join Sophia's Buddies with, like we have a team Hans, there's a team Ethan, there's a team Marisa, there's a, you know, it's, so it's a, this kind of, flexible number of families and participants and when we lived just two hours away you know I think the biggest team we ever had was 35 members 25 members one year we've um gosh we've raised $137,000 since 2015 with our team Hans and I think Sophia's buddies is way up to it must be half a million dollars by then but it's just a, a really fun and wonderful and kind of indulgent way to remember and celebrate and give back. Now, now, Kevin, how long is the swim, the, the bike ride and the run? The swim is a half mile. The bike ride is, it changes a little bit, but it's about say 18 miles. And then the run is four. So it's not a, by triathlon standards, not a super long one. It's something that everyone I think can do um, with a little bit of training. Um, but it's, I mean, it's as long as you're not trying to win it, you can, you can, it's something you can finish, you know, but, you know, Laura mentioned before the support that we got like initially in Houston or, or all throughout Hans's treatment. For me, it's an opportunity we have friends from Texas that come out and join it. Like all those friends that initially supported us and brought dinners and all that. A lot of years, half of those people are coming out and doing the triathlon. So it's like a little reunion and they all know Hans. And so it's special, I think for them and, and for all of us. So it's, it's awesome. I, I love doing it every year. For it, sure. sounds, it sounds like a great event. Now, I'm going to ask uh, Lara about the annual Houston Valentine's Bake Sale that was started in 2016. Uh, or no, it wasn't started in 2016. 2016, it was having its ninth event. Do you, is is that event still going on? And is does it um, uh, do the proceeds go uh, towards Hans and uh, what you're trying to raise money for? Okay, so the bake sale was one of the first fundraising things we did. And I love it. I always say, no place but Texas can you have a $5,000 bake sale. <laughs> you know, everything's bigger and better in Texas. So we would have this bake sale a few times a year right at the Children's Hospital. 
And I honestly think I kind of lost track of how, how much we raised, but the, the funds that we raised would go to the Children's Neuroblastoma Cancer Foundation, which would support cancer research as well as the annual conference. Because I always say as important as it is to fund the research, parents need to also know what research is available, you know, because um, not everyone lives nearby a center of excellence for neuroblastoma, you know? Um, and I think it changed hands a few times after we moved tech from away from Texas, but I sadly, I think it fizzled out a few years ago, but it was a really, it was a fun, it was a lot of work, but really fun and um, easy way for families to come together. So it was like all of the neuroblastoma families and our friends, would bake and get our friends to bake and our family to bake. And then we'd have this, we just filled a huge skyway full of baked goods. And we, we sold everything to other families and doctors and nurses, and it did really well. Well, that's great to hear. Now I'm going to ask Kevin this question, even though I, I was reading it um, in something that Lara wrote. Now there's an immunotherapy drug called unituxin which is now being used for neuroblaster, uh, neuroblastoma patients who I believe have experienced a relapse. And if my figures are correct, if you're being treated now with this medicine, uh, which again, probably was not available during um, Hans's treatment, you now have a 63% survival rate uh, for, for relapsed neuroblastoma the last figure I had read for that, and I read it several times, was no more than 50%. Now, with that drug and perhaps others on the way, are you optimistic that current and future children that unfortunately are going to be diagnosed with neuroblastoma have a much better chance than Hans did? Yeah, I do. And I that's where I do get to see some of those um, ongoing trials. and with the NK cells, the natural killer cells, you know, inserting cells that, or that will actually go after the, the neuroblastoma cells themselves. Um, looking at some of the, they're improving the genetics, you know, knowing the genetics of the specific tumors to each person, like the ALK cells that, you know, there's the MICN amplification. So learning how to attack those because neuroblastoma isn't the same for everyone, right? There's different genetics for each person. And so they're learning a lot about that. And I, like you said, when I do remember that initial conversation, when, when they told us that he had neuroblastoma, here's the protocol. And I asked what, what was the survival rate? And she said it was basically a coin flip at that time. It was 50, 50. And you're right. I think it's upwards of 60% now with the new, because some of those trials have now gone into frontline therapy. So those frontline protocols are different than when Hans was there. So unfortunately, I <clears throat> it's never fast enough to get to that, you know, like the leukemia kids for, um, you know, they're the, they've kind of hit the jackpot with that, where of course people get very sick and, but the success or the survival rates are much higher now. Um, like with that type of pediatric cancer. So hopefully you just keep chipping away and it goes to 70 and to 80 and to, you just keep getting there. 
through trial and error, unfortunately, I wish there was a, maybe there will be, maybe there will be one of these things will work and it'll be a magic bullet. But, but yes, I'm very hopeful and I'm, I'm happy. I sometimes think, dang it, if it was just five years later and he could have got that one, would that have made a difference? But you really can't think like that. And I'm just glad that he's been part of the process of making other kids better. Well, he certainly has left a uh, uh, an amazing legacy. I'm going to ask each one of you this question, and I'll start with Lara. What does the future hold for you as far as uh, your advocacy work uh, for these kids? Um, I think that I, let's see, I, I think we're going to keep doing the um, triathlon and raising money that way. I am involved in the NANT on the Parent Advisory Council. Um, and let's see, I just hope that I continue to find um, ways to be involved and help and fight and give back. And I'm starting to slowly connect with a couple of moms here in Portland Um in the pediatric cancer world. And I'm just open to being responsive to supporting in ways that I can. Well, the Portland community is going to be uh, very happy that you are reaching out and uh, the couple of parents that you've um, reached out to, that's going to be multiplying. So I hope you, I hope you have your calculator ready for that. <laughs> and and Kevin, I'll ask you the same question. Yeah, I, I hope I, still get the opportunity to be involved with the data safety monitoring board for the clinical trials. I'm, I want to continue that. Um, and, um, I, as long as they'll have me, I would like to do that. Um, and I've really, oh, well, and then we have the conferences for, <clears throat> for that organization too, for Nant, where once, once a year we get to meet in person and actually watch the doctors give presentations on the new trials. And that's really I, important for both of us just to keep connected with not only Hans's prior doctors, but the new people coming into the group with new ideas. And I, I always want to be continued with that. But um, yeah, with parents in the Portland area, we haven't got that involved yet, but I'm always happy to to do whatever. Mm-hmm. And well, you the, may- the triathlon, we'll, we'll always do something mm-hmm. like that. Well, well, (laughs) it's funny when you talk about the triathlon, you say uh, probably anybody could do it with training. Um, I'm very good at the dog paddle. Yeah. I swim. What? So when I qualify, I'm not sure I could do, do it. Yeah, okay. I'll tell you a secret. Um, I did the whole thing one year and I did the swim and I got out. I'm not a good swimmer either. And it's out in the open ocean. It's not a big deal, but <laughs> I got about halfway there and I could, t- it was taking me so long because I'm not a fast swimmer. And the, um, there's guys on surfboards, jet skis, there's plenty of help out there. You're totally safe. But one of them could see, I was kind of tired and he said, do you want to ride in? And I said, yeah, I do. <laughs> so I, I took the jet ski into the beach and didn't quite finish the swim, but I, I continued to do the bike and the run. So it was all good. I think it's just more for that one. It's the participation and the spirit of the, the event. 
Yeah, because Mark, you can actually, you can do the whole thing yourself as an individual, but you can also do a relay team. So you can do just one leg of those three events and yeah. you're still competing as a triathlete, you know, on two months. I, I think if it wasn't too hot, I could probably do the the, uh, the four mile run. I think. <laughs> I think you yeah. could. <laughs> um, where can I? I'll, I guess I'll ask Laura this. Where can people get in touch with you? You've got a first of all an incredible story to tell, uh, as you so both so eloquently told it. To find more uh, out more about Hans, to find out more about uh, your family, uh, what you do for advocacy work, and maybe even want to enter a triathlon. Oh, yeah. So we do have um, the blog is still up. I don't actively post on it that much anymore. It's Hans Journey at Blogspot. But our email address is super easy. Kevin and Laura at Hotmail.com. Well, I want to, as we come to the end of this podcast, thank both of you for taking the time to come on. It's such a, you know, (laughs) 10 years has passed. I'm sure the the, the emotions obviously are still there, will always be there, but you did a beautiful job in in talking about Hans and talking about everything that has happened uh, over uh, now that it's been 16 years now, um, which uh, probably seems like a very long time on certain days and sometimes goes by in the blink of an eye. But I want to wish both of you, Elle and uh, everyone, the best of health as time goes on. And certainly as it's now two days before Thanksgiving, I hope you have a wonderful Thanksgiving. Likewise. (laughs) Thank you so much, Mark. Yeah. Thanks, Mark. Feel free to, feel free to pass anyone along to us. You have a great day. Thank you. Okay. Okay. Take care. It is always so difficult for parents to talk about the loss of a child from pediatric cancer, which is as unfair a situation as there is. I am always so impressed when I hear any parent who is able to talk about their loss. And Lara and Kevin are another example of parents who are able to beautifully articulate what their child meant to them. This is Mark Levine, and please tune in on Thursday when I will speak with Dr. Leanna Marks, who specializes in pediatric lymphoma. Dr. Marks will talk about 17-year-old Mia Gatanaga, who she successfully treated for primary mediastinal large B-cell lymphoma at the Lucille Packard Children's Hospital at Stanford University. This cancer strikes less than 100 teens and young adults each year.